This evening's reading is Isaiah chapter 5, and it can be found on page 689 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revellers. So man will be brought low, and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture, lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work, so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come, so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and clever in their own sight. 
Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore as tongs of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuge in the streets. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist, nor a sandal thong broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion, they roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's um, pray as we come to look at it now. Psalmist writes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this chance to look at it now. And as we come before a section that is hard for us to read and accept, please would we yet, by the power of your spirit, uh, yet would it be sweet uh, and a blessing to us. Uh, We ask it for Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen. Well, the reading had a good deal to say about judgment, and so let me ask the question uh, for you tonight. Do you believe uh, that God is going to judge uh, our world, that every single one of us uh, is accountable to him uh, for how we've lived our lives? Uh, And uh, not just theoretically, uh, but we really are going to be judged. It's an awesome reality. Uh, I wonder, do you believe that? Does it shape uh, the way you live? And do you believe that God's going to judge the church? He's going to judge his own people and that being connected uh, to God's people doesn't exempt us uh, from his judgment. Well, passages like uh, Isaiah 5 are hard. Uh, They're difficult for us to accept. They're difficult for us to deal with. 30 verses that we've had read presenting a pretty bleak picture uh, of human sin and God's judgment against it. And it may be that you look at a passage like this tonight, maybe you're newish to Christian things, and you're thinking, why is the Bible so negative uh, about uh, human nature? Uh, and, and why does it speak in these ways? It seems more negative than any other kind of religious book or, or source of philosophy that I know. How can we deal uh, with a passage 
uh, like we have before us tonight. Well, there are different ways uh, of responding to it. Uh, Here are three ways that we could deal with it quickly. One is to discard it. Uh, That is to sort of look at it and think, I can't can't cope with this. It doesn't fit with our culture. Uh, It's distasteful. And so the best thing to do is just to put it out of my mind. Uh, It's the reality uh, that in a number of the sort of Sunday lectionaries, that's kind of reading programs that Christian churches use, uh, they avoid uh, all the difficult passages. So I was looking at one uh, today uh, and it chooses all the nice bits of Isaiah to read uh, and avoids the bits uh, like this uh, that are hard. We can just uh, discard it or we can engage with it a bit more uh, but yet be filled with doubt uh, about it. Uh, That is to say, you know, I just doubt that God really does act in the world uh, like Isaiah presents it. Or we can, uh, thirdly, uh, go for a displacement strategy. That is to say, I accept what he's saying, uh, but I can't accept it applies to me. It applies to others, maybe. Yes, there are evil people in the world, uh, but not to me. Or discard, doubt, or displace... Uh, I suspect we all of us, to some extent, react like this uh, to a passage that we've had read like this. And in Isaiah's day, uh, this is how the people of Israel were reacting to his message. Isaiah uh, is writing in approximately uh, 740 uh, BC, uh, at this point in time. And the last half century for Israel has been pretty good. They are pretty relaxed Uh, pretty chilled out. The economy's going well. They're at peace with their neighbours. And although Israel and Judah are separated, I've just got a map to show. Um, Can you see that? No? (laughs) Oh. Um, (laughs) Not quite sure what that's about. Does that mean it's it's fallen out? No, no, it can't have fallen out, can it? Um, I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. Why on earth would that do that? Is that? No? No, joy. Right. Shall we forget the maps? Shall we forget the maps? I was going to show you a map of Israel and Judah uh, at this particular point in time. Uh, Things are going pretty well for them, uh, economically and in all of these ways, but spiritually, uh, it's another story. Uh, They are wandering far from... God. And perhaps it's similar to the last sort of 60, 70 years of Western culture. You know, we've had the wars that have, the big wars that have been finished. The economy has generally speaking been going quite well. Uh, We're at peace generally. But spiritually, it's another story, isn't it, when you think about the West. But in Israel's day, in Isaiah's day, a crisis is on the horizon. They don't realise it yet. Uh, And the first five chapters of this book are setting up the reasons for the crisis that is coming. Isaiah is summing up the spiritual condition of Israel, and chapter 5 is the climax, and it's grim reading. And the crisis is coming in the form of Assyria. Assyria is the big uh, power of the region. It is brutal, it is growing, uh, and in the years to come it will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and it will almost destroy the southern. But why is God angry with Israel? Why is he going to judge them? Well, let's have a look at chapter 5. And the chapter falls into two parts, uh, I think, quite naturally. Uh, it's poetic writing, uh, and it's almost like we've got 
two poems uh, in this chapter, two songs, if you like. And um, I've got two headings. I was going to put them on the screen, but I'll just read them out. There are two different songs here. First is a love song, uh, a love song that's gone wrong. Uh, And then secondly, there is a lament, a lament for what will be lost. So we've got two types of song. Uh, First, a love song that has gone wrong. Uh, That is verses 5 down to 7. Let's have a look at that first. Talking of sin is hard to accept, isn't it? And so God in the Bible often uses different means to grab our attention. Think of Jesus' parables. Or think of the way the prophet Naaman confronted David with a story uh, that then revealed his sinfulness. Well, here, Isaiah, if you like, gets out, of his, gets out of his guitar uh, and he sings a love song. Uh, and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to uh, grab Rob's guitar uh, and start singing. Although I did once go to hear my brother-in-law preach, uh, and the first thing that he did was he stood up on a chair and sang really loudly uh, the first lines from Les Miserables, and um, he could sing, actually, so it was pretty good. Um, and he did get our attention, Uh, about what he was going to say. And so Isaiah starts with a love song, uh, and so we're interested, aren't we? Uh, It's a strange love song. It's a song about a vineyard. Perhaps the French would be getting excited at this point. Um, The Israelites would be, uh, because the archetypal perfect family home in Israel, you had a vine uh, in your garden. It was almost like their national plant in the way that the English have got the rose. So it's a love song about a vineyard. Let's read a bit again. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Well, Isaiah's loved one has gone to all the effort possible uh, to grow a good vine. He's chosen a fertile hill, he's ploughed it, he's taken out the stones, uh, he's planted the best uh, variety of grapes, not just any old sort of plonk uh, that's going to be made from this. This is Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, He's built a watchtower, he's dug out a proper wine press in it, Uh, and verse 5 also says that he's built a a wall uh, and a hedge uh, around it. He's done everything Uh, to grow a really good vine. Uh, He's the perfect vine grower. But it all goes wrong. The choice vine yields only bad fruit. What a shock. Uh, Literally, uh, and the Hebrew is much less polite than English, it says stinking fruit. Uh, That's what it says. The fruit stinks. Uh, I was reading this week about the Woodstock Fruit Festival. Have you heard about that in, in New York State? Uh, apparently each day they eat durian fruit, uh, which is fruit that stinks of dung uh, and um, not very nice sounding. Um, but reading this um, uh, bit of Isaiah, uh, it uh, also not just made me think of that uh, article, but it almost also reminded me of my own gardening attempts uh, over the years, which have been rather few and unsuccessful. But I tried to grow tomatoes um, a couple of years ago, and it, for a while things were going quite well. Uh, the fruit appeared, uh, it started to change colour, started to get ripe, uh, and then suddenly, over a few days, it all just went brown. Uh, all the tomatoes turned brown, and they were rank and disgusting. Uh, it was really bad. And that is a little bit what happens here, that the fruit that comes uh, is bad 
uh, fruit. And so the song takes a horrible turn. Uh, And look at verses 3 and 4. It it, it almost changes into a different kind of song. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? So now Isaiah's beloved is speaking. And it's a little bit like um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, You know how it sort of starts off as a nice sort of gentle bit of piano music, a nice kind of song. Uh, And then it kind of all accelerates into this sort of drama, this kind of courtroom drama. Let him go, we will not let him go, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what happens here. It's like a courtroom. Uh, And uh, the the owner of the vineyard is saying to the people of Israel, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for this vineyard? And of course, the answer is nothing. It's not the farmer's fault. He's done everything possible uh, to grow the best uh, vine Uh, imaginable. All the care that he's lavished on it has made no difference. It still has produced bad fruit. And so what does a vine grower do in such circumstances when the crop uh, is so bad? Well, it's there in verses 5 and 6. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Well, maybe this sounds like a bit of an uh, overreaction. But as we come towards the end of this song, we start to see what it all represents. Who is the one who can command the clouds not to rain Uh, Well, it is only uh, God himself. The vine grower is God, as verse 7 puts it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. The vineyard, of course, represents the people of Israel, and God is the farmer. And we know that he has been very, very patient with them. Uh, He's given them so many good gifts and patiently waited for them to live the lives and produce the fruit uh, that he expects from them. He didn't finally judge them until after waiting many years patiently for them. So why is he going to judge them? Why is he going to judge them? Well, he supplied them with a totality of good things uh, in their history. He saved them from Egypt. He planted them in Canaan, a fertile land. He gave them his law. He defeated their enemies again and again. But the fruit of their lives is bad. It's as if none of God's goodness uh, has changed them and affected them. Sometimes I come across this occasionally in the life of church uh, here and elsewhere, uh, that someone has joined the life of the church. They've received lots of care and attention. Uh, They've received teaching from the Bible, lots of good things, and for a time things things be going really well. And then for some reason uh, they've just dropped it all. Uh, and walked out. And for those who've given that care, it can be very painful indeed. Uh, And that is the kind of thing that Israel and Judah have done to God. He's lavished care upon them perfectly, unlike us churches, we do imperfectly. He's done it perfectly, uh, and yet they've thrown it back in his face. The second half of verse 7, Isaiah is a very uh, clever uh, use, a clever poet and use of language, because it it goes like this. Uh, It says... um, Uh, Where is it again? It says, he looked for justice 
in the original that's mishpat, uh, but saw bloodshed, mishpach. Uh, he looked for righteousness, which is tzedakah, but heard cries of distress, tzedakah. Great poetry uh, in the original Hebrew. He looked for justice, the righting of wrongs, uh, but he saw bloodshed, the inflicting of wrongs. He looked for righteousness, right living, right relationships, uh, but there were cries of distress, indicating wrong relationships and the anguish of the oppressed. That's what God saw in the life uh, of Israel. And maybe Isaiah's clever use of words shows that the Israelites themselves can just barely see the difference. They can barely recognise that the good uh, has turned to bad. But God sees, and God wants to confront them with the reality that what they have become stinks uh, in his presence. It's a love song uh, gone wrong. God provided for them everything to bear good fruit, but they've borne bad. But it's not as if Israel is unique. Their story is the story of the first human beings in the Garden of Eden. And it's the path trodden uh, by all people everywhere. It's the path trodden, sadly, often by the church and by us. And we're going to see in the second song, uh, which is all about the characteristics of this stinking fruit, uh, why that is the case. Let's have a look, secondly, at this Lament, a lament over what's going to be lost. It is verse 8 down to 30. We're going to go a little bit faster uh, through this. Uh, it is a long section. The best way, I think, to sort of uh, help, us, help us through it is to see that there are a sort of repeating pattern. There are six woes pronounced on Israel, and there are four therefores, how God is going to respond. Six woes, four therefores. The woes... It's not just that Isaiah is sort of denouncing them, warning them. Uh, the word for woe is also, it's a word about grief. Uh, he is weeping. It's a lament for Israel about what they've become uh, and the judgment uh, that's going to be faced. And the six woes explain why the stink is so bad. Uh, it's, if you like, he's kind of pulling apart all the different ways that they've done wrong and showing why it is absolutely right uh, that God is going to judge. Let's have a look at these woes in two sort of uh, parts. It sort of splits in two sections. Uh, and the first is all about kind of greed and self-indulgence. Look at verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. It's greed uh, that's in view here. And as with each of these woes, I think what we see... The, the sin that we see has an attractive beginning. You know, who of us doesn't want a bit of a better house or a bit of a bigger garden, maybe? It's easy, though, for a desire for something good uh, to get out of hand, uh, to get out of control and to become a driving ambition in our lives, rather, rather than being content with what God has given us, always striving uh, for more. And the Israelites, in particular, had forgotten uh, the deal uh, when they arrived in the land. Back in Leviticus, it says very clearly, the land belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord's land. And he gave to each family uh, little sections of the land that were, were to be for their family, you know, forever. Uh, and um, they weren't to, 
sort of go and acquire more bits of land and, and push others out. They were to be permanent tenants on their family's uh, land. You know, if occasionally they did have to do some uh, buying and selling of land or property, it was to be temporary. There was to be a jubilee uh, every 50 years and things were to be returned. And so this land grabbing that's going on, this house expanding business that's going on, is not God's intention. It is greed. And it's meant uh, that other people are being squeezed out uh, and uh, dispossessed of the land. And there's a link, I think, between greed and exploitation uh, of others. It's not a huge step, is it, from wanting something for nothing, wanting something that we haven't worked for, that's kind of how gambling works, isn't it? That's why it's kind of exciting. Uh, and wanting something for which other people have worked for. Yeah, exploitation uh, of others. And we are very good, aren't we, I think, in the West, of hiding our eyes from those who are exploited so that we can satisfy our own greed. Well, that was going on in Israel in Isaiah's day, and it was not to be. In fact, their actions... Uh, had their own inevitable negative consequences. The rich people were alone in the land as the poor people were being sort of pushed out. And verse 10 tells us uh, that the land was becoming unproductive as God no longer uh, was blessing it. Greed, which takes over, has a very contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? But then there's self-indulgence. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Again, this sin has an attractive beginning. Hoover's doesn't like some nice food uh, or a nice drink. But these things can easily become an obsession as we seek pleasure and put the enjoyment of pleasure increasingly central in our lives. These people here get out of bed to drink uh, and then stay out of bed to keep on drinking. It's their obsession. It's their idol. But pleasure-seeking first has some really negative consequences. It squeezes out other things. It squeezes out good responsibilities that we have. And in particular here, it is squeezing out an appetite for spiritual things. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul uh, says, do not get drunk on wine, rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. These Israelites, you see, because of their self-indulgence and their pleasure-seeking, it has dampened uh, and quenched their appetite Uh, for the Lord. They now have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. And again, how contemporary it is, isn't it? As we live in this rich uh, Western society, uh, self-indulgent, and yet we've got no regard uh, for the deeds of the Lord. How close to the bone is Isaiah's criticism of Israel? Well, there's one more set of ways to mention briefly. This is verse 18 to the end, the second half. Could call this woe, scepticism about God. Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Well, verse 18 seems to be a kind of general overarching statement about them. 
But in verse 19, it focuses in on a kind of scepticism or cynicism about God. And rather than recognising that they are answerable to God, uh, it seems they are now expecting him to be answerable uh, to them. I don't know if this uh, quote is true. Uh, often these kind of quotes about Churchill aren't true, although many of them are. Uh, but someone apparently said to him, are you ready to meet your maker? And in response, uh, he's supposed to have said, the question is, is he ready for the ordeal of meeting me? Well, that kind of reversal uh, of our attitude to God uh, is so contemporary, isn't it? What Israel was doing back then is what we are like as a culture. We put God in the dock today, we judge him, and we expect him to prove himself to us. And I think, again, you can see uh, in the verses that follow this kind of progression. There's a little bit of scepticism about God. Maybe that seems attractive or wise, but it leads to arrogance towards God. We no longer put him first, but we put ourselves first. We decide what is right and wrong morally. Uh, and so you see this sort of descent uh, in the last few verses uh, in Isaiah. I was reading a little letter exchange in the paper this week uh, about whether only religious people were able to live ethically. This was an exchange that took place before the incident in France, I might say. Uh, but one of the letters said, of course, atheists can live eth ethically. They simply produce their own ethics. But Isaiah is observing that since the Israelites have started making themselves moral arbiters, it's led to a complete twisting of their morality. So look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's a reversal. It's a complete perversion of what is good. And it leads again, 22 and 23, we see it working out in other areas uh, of life. And isn't this again so contemporary? We see this uh, in our culture. We see this in our churches. And don't we need to be honest about ourselves and our own hearts and see ourselves as we really are? Well, after all God has done for the Israelites, this is the fruit that they've produced, and it stinks. It is grim. This is the society that they are. And so, therefore, God is right to judge. And we see, for therefores briefly, uh, of God's judging. Two of them are specific. The judgment fits the crime. So, verse 13, in response to greed and self-indulgence, have a look at it. It says they will go into exile. They will lose the land they've been grabbing. And they will hunger and thirst. Their appetites will not be filled any longer. In fact, if you turn over the page, verse 14, therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. The only appetite that's going to be fulfilled is the grave. And then verse 24, look at the other specific uh, judgment. They... The sceptics were saying, hurry up, God, come on, show yourself to us. Well, now judgment will come like tongues of fire lick up straw as dry grass sinks down into the flames. It will be swift when it comes. And the roots of their alternative moral system, it says, are going to decay. And they won't produce good fruit 
uh, their flowers will blow away like dust. Why? For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. God has lavished total care on his people uh, and they've responded the way they have. And so as well as these two specific judgments, we also see two more complete judgments. So in verses 14 to 17 uh, is the first one. So look at 15, for example. It says, man will be brought low, mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant uh, humbled. Since they won't display God's righteousness themselves in the way that they live, God is going to display his righteousness, his holiness, in his judgment. Uh, Look at verse 16. The Lord will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy One will show himself holy by his righteousness. The word holy means to be separate. Uh, God is described as holy because he's separate, he's different uh, from Uh, the rest of his creation and from humankind. In what way is he different? Well, he is different because he is just. He is morally pure. He is righteous. And that will be seen by his judgment uh, on Israel. And then the final judgment is at the end, 25 uh, down to 30. And it just gets worse, doesn't it? Because it says, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised there is going to be a total judgment on Israel. That's 26 down to 30. Uh, And it's a a chilling description of God summoning distant nations, the Assyrians uh, who destroyed the northern kingdom uh, and later the Babylonians who destroyed Judah. Ruthless pagan nations, God uses them. He summons them, he whistles for them like a dog, like a a Rottweiler. uh, And they do his bidding and judge his people. They put an end to the old kingdom of Israel. And it's grim reading, isn't it? Uh, It is very hard uh, for us to look at it. Well, in conclusion, what should we say? How should we respond? Should we say, like the Jews of Isaiah's day, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it? Uh, Well, having read uh, what his work is, surely not. And amazingly, God, in his kindness in history has actually been very slow to anger uh, and very slow to judge but he is right to do it uh, when the time comes he's right to judge Israel he's right to judge the world and the church and us God has supplied all good things and we've produced the bad and the bad is a stinking catalogue of descent into evil greed self-indulgence skepticism and a complete inversion of values. We've got here a love story gone wrong and a lament uh, over what will be lost. And I guess we we look at a passage like this and we think, is there any hope? Because this passage does not present the hope to us. Is there any hope? Well, for Israel, the judgment that came was total. The kingdom uh, was lost and it never again reappeared in its earthly form uh, with a Davidic king. It was total But it wasn't final. It wasn't final. A remnant of the people remained. And after the removal of the old, Isaiah prophesies that God will rebuild his kingdom, but in a different and far greater form. And in fact, the judgment that fell on Israel 
paved the way for a greater salvation for the whole world. But how can God do good to his people and it really produce good in us? You know, he lavished good on Israel and it produced bad fruit. How can he do it and know that it's going to produce good fruit? And how can God destroy human evil and not destroy us? Well, our passage has got lots and lots of descriptions of human sin, but the New Testament gives us one solution uh, that God provides. Just briefly, Isaiah will talk about this lots more. But Jesus, when he comes, he takes on his lips the language of the vine and he promises a way of hope for the human race. John chapter 15. Jesus says these wonderful words. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is one solution to be found in Jesus Christ. Isaiah has got a big message of judgment, but as he goes on and as we go on over these next few weeks, we're going to see that he has got much to say and promise about this Saviour Jesus that is to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, this is a hard, hard passage for us, but we thank you for it. We thank you that it is good for us and pray that we will respond in the way you want us to, that we will accept uh, the reasons for your judgment and that we will look to Jesus as the wonderful hope to save us from it. We ask it in his name. Amen.